Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up this evening with step number four on obedience on page 92. If you have the same translation that we're using from Transfiguration Monastery, uh, paragraph 110 about St. Acacius. And uh, these two steps, four and five, are perhaps the most challenging, not only because they're the, the longest in the, in the work, uh, but they turn our, our world on its end you know, in the way that we view ourselves, uh, how we look at our own will or willfulness, uh, and then also how we look at repentance. And uh, some of the stories that we're going to hear are very challenging. And uh, I mentioned in some previous groups, a little movie about St. Francis of Assisi that I once saw, an Italian version of it. And the opening scene was uh, the little boy Francis hanging by his legs on a swing. You know how little kids will do it and they'll swing upside down. And it was an interesting way, I thought, to begin the film, that seeing the world in a different way and sort of turning the world upside down, which what his, the path in his life did for him. It radically turned his world upside down. And there's something along those lines here that one experiences, I think, in reading John about obedience and uh, repentance, not only in terms of how it is that we apply what is being written uh, to our life with, within the world, how it is that we embrace this, but how deep their, their view of obedience goes or how uh, deep the vision of repentance is in terms of the, the love that we are to have for virtue, but also the sorrow, the mourning that we are to have whenever we turn away from love, whenever we turn away from God. And... John pushes us right to, to the, the edge with both and the stories that he offers us as well as uh, some of the teachings. And so be prepared for what, what lies ahead. Don't be afraid to uh, offer comments or questions or things that feel uncomfortable because undoubtedly they will be. So again, we're on page 92, paragraph 110. I will not be silent about something which is not right to leave in silence lest I should inhumanly keep to myself what ought to be made known. The famous John the Sabbath told me things worth hearing and that he was detached and above all, uh, I'm sorry, and that he was detached and above all falsehood and free from words and deeds of evil, you know from your own experience, Holy Father. This man told me, in my monastery in Asia, for that is where the good man came from, there was a certain elder who was extremely careless and dissolute. I say this without passing judgment on him, but simply to state the truth. He obtained, I do not know how, a disciple, a youth called Acacius, simple-hearted but prudent in thought. And he endured so much from this elder that to many people it will perhaps seem incredible. For the elder tormented him daily, not only with insults and indignities, but even with blows. But his patience was not mere senseless endurance. 
And so seeing him daily in wretched plight, like the lowest slave, I would ask him when I met him, what is the matter, Brother Acacius? How are you today? And he would at once show me a black eye or a scarred neck or head. But knowing that he was a worker, I would say to him, well done, well done. Endure and it all will be for your good. Having spent nine years with this pitiless elder, he departed to the Lord. Five days after his burial in the cemetery of the fathers, Acacius' master went to a certain great elder living there and said to him, Father, brother Acacius is dead. As soon as the elder heard this, he said, Believe me, elder, I do not believe it. The other replied, Come and see. The elder at once rose and went to the cemetery with the master of the blessed athlete. And he called as to a living person to him who was truly alive in his falling asleep and said, Are you dead, brother Acacius? And the good doer of obedience, showing his obedience even after his death, replied to the great elder, How is it possible, father, for a man who is a doer of obedience to die? Then the elder, who had been Acacius' master, became terrified and fell on his face in tears. Afterwards, he asked the abbot of the Lavra for a cell near the tomb and lived in it devoutly, always saying to the fathers, I have committed murder. And it seemed to me, Father John, that the one who spoke to the dead man was the great John himself. For that blessed soul told me another story as if it were about someone else when it was really about himself, as I was afterwards able to learn for certain. So, troubling image, certainly. Uh, a young man who places himself in the care of an elder who did not offer him great care and guidance, but rather abused him, uh, and not only verbally, but physically. And, uh, and so John really pushes our understanding of, of obedience, and certainly we wouldn't take this as the norm uh, for us in the, in the sense of uh, enduring physical abuse. Uh, but J John tells us that for Acacius, this was not simply in, uh, uh, raw endurance on his part that it was embraced in this spirit of obedience, but the spirit of Christ in particular, uh, that conformed him uh, in a very powerful way to Christ, uh, especially in his passion, that he was willing to endure even to death, to make him, you know, to become obedient, uh, to become a slave, a servant of this elder, obedient and even unto death itself that he endures with this elder uh, to great cost, the cost of his own life. And that this bears uh, a fruit, that it is redemptive, not only for himself, which of course it was, that there was a perfection and obedience there, but it brings about the conversion of the elder who had abused him that what is manifested to him is uh, the, the great fruit of this obedience, which brought about our redemption on the cross, that brings about this elder's redemption, 
that seeing the, the depth of this humble obedience and love, that he's moved, moved to compunction and takes up residence at, at the tomb and acknowledges before others uh, the depth of his sin, that it wasn't simply that he was abusive, but he was a murderer. And so it pulls him out of what was a deadly sin uh, to walk upon a redemptive path and even a saintly path. I think John is telling us here that this is uh, a holy elder that often told stories as if they uh, were some, from somebody else's life, but were from his own. And so the one telling John this story is the murderer, uh, is, is what John is telling us. And uh, so it's a, a striking image. And again, because it, it pushes us uh, beyond certainly beyond the frame of what we would understand as just or what we would understand as being healthy uh, and even what we would understand as obedience and it pushes us beyond reason and this is why i said at the beginning that so much of what we are going to read here turns the way that we view things on on its end uh, that the obedience that we are called to at times in this life and the heroic obedience that makes us confessors of the faith is the obedience of Christ himself. That even though there was perfect innocence, perfect virtue there, no sin whatsoever, and despite his true identity, that he takes the form of a slave of servant and becomes obedient unto death. And this is what gives meaning to Acacius's obedience, that it, is so, it so directs us to Christ. And even some of the language here, I don't know if you picked up on it, when the elder uh, is told that, uh, that he does not believe that Acacius is dead, uh, the one who murders him says, come and see, uh, a line that we hear often within the scriptures, uh, come and see, come and look at something and witness for yourself uh, a love of obedience that is of, of the kingdom, a love that is uh, redemptive. And, and ironically, it comes from he who is the murderer himself, come and see that he's dead. But in reality, uh, he is going to be taken to see that he's not dead, but very much alive and uh, alive in Christ. And again, you know, I think we have to be careful when we, we, when we read this, that we don't make this the norm in the sense of accepting abuse, physical abuse or any kind of abuse uh, in that way that uh, especially uh, you know, in, in relationships. And even here, again, I think we would say that this is not the norm, but what we see Acacius do with it is something heroic that John even marvels at and sees as incredible, that he can see in Acacius's heart that he's isn't enduring something in a Christ-like way. Well done, well done, endure it, and it will be for your good, John says to him. So he can see that Acacius is embracing it, not uh, 
simply in a slavish way or in, in the sense of allowing himself to be abused, but with the desire that it would be redemptive and redemptive not for simply for himself, but for this elder as well. Anthony writes, Trisagian films had one film, I think it was about St. Joseph the Hesychist, who was impelled to leave an unkind elder after enduring for a while, right? And so, you know, again, we're not being presented with the norm or the model here, but we're being drawn out to the very edge of things in order that we might see uh, beyond where reason or right judgment would take us and what faith allows us to see. And uh, I think if we were simply to look at this from our personal judgment, we would say a terrible thing. And, but if I think if we were able to see it, certainly in the context of the whole of what we are reading, and if we are to see it also in light of the cross, that a person becomes a confessor uh, in the way that the fathers speak of them and in their perfect modeling of what Christ does. They confess the faith by bearing witness to this heroic obedience that is redemptive. And this is what Acacius does. And, and we know that, again, because of the fruit that it produced in, in the, the one who was the murderer. Any comments or anything that anyone would want to say about this story? There's others to come. And so there'll be ample opportunity to offer comments and go back to it. So we can, we can move on. I could see Angela thinking already. So <laughs> we'll give you time, don't worry. <laughs> okay. On page 93, 111, there was another, said John, in the same monastery in Asia who became a disciple of a certain meek, gentle, and quiet monk. And seeing that the elder honored and cared for him, he rightly judged that this would be fatal for many, and he begged the elder to send him away. As the elder had another disciple, this would not cause him much inconvenience. And so he went away, with a letter from his master, he settled in a Cenobitic monastery in Pontus. On the first night that he entered this monastery, he saw in a dream his account being made out by someone. And after settling that awful account, he was left a debtor to the sum of a hundred pounds of gold. When he woke up, he began to reflect on what he had seen in his dream and said, poor Antiochus, for this it was his name, you certainly fall far short of your debt. And when he continued, I had lived in this monastery for three years in unquestioning obedience and was regarded by all with contempt and was insulted as a foreigner, for there was no other foreign monk there. Then again, I saw in a dream someone giving me a credit note for a payment of 10 pounds of my debt. And so when I woke up and had the thought about my dream, I said, still only 10, but when, 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 but when shall I pay the rest? And that I said to myself, poor Antiochus, still more toil and dishonor for you. 
From that time forward, I began to pretend to be a blockhead. Certainly an interesting little translation that seems a little modern to me. I'm not sure how frequently they used the word blockhead back in John's day. Uh, yet without in any way neglecting the service of all. But when the merciless fathers saw that I willingly served in the same condition, they gave me all the heavy work of the monastery. In such a way of life, I spent 13 years when I, in a dream, I'm sorry, when in a dream I saw those who had appeared to me before, and they gave me a receipt in complete settlement of my debt. So when the members of the monastery imposed upon me in any way, I remembered my debt and endured it courageously. So you see, Father John, that wise John told me this as if it were about another person. And that was why he changed his name to Antiochus. But in actual fact, it was he himself who so courageously blotted out the handwriting by his patience and obedience. So interesting, a different focus here. And we see this come up not only in this step, but in the next as well, about the kind of spiritual elder or director that one would seek, that we wouldn't necessarily seek the one that we connect with, or we seem to uh, have the same temperament. Uh, that might attract us to a particular elder, but it might not be what we need, depending on what it is that we struggle with or the passions that have a, a grip on us. Uh, someone uh, who struggles with gluttony, we will hear, doesn't want to have an elder who always has a snack ready and you know offers this hospitality whenever you visit, that you would want an elder that was more strict and demanding you know, both in one's ascetical practices, but also in the expectation of obedience uh, to strengthen one's will in that regard. And so Antiochus sees that he's uh, maybe not seeing in, with full clarity, uh, but ha having a sense that where he was uh, with this mild and meek and gentle and quiet monk that he was not going to address what he needed to spiritually. And so asked for permission to leave and to go to a not another monastery. And it ends up as we hear, <clears throat> excuse me, a monastery where he's a foreigner. And so uh, he probably doesn't speak the language well, doesn't know their customs well, and is not going to be treated with the kind of familiarity that the other monks would be treated with, or maybe the gentleness. And it turns out that that's true. Uh, but he has this dream that he, he owes, where he sees the, the nature of the debt that he owes, in the sense of uh, reparation, if you will, for the sins of his life. And, uh, and so he gain, begins to gain a kind of clarity that he is in the right place and that he takes upon himself not only the, the weight that he was already bearing, uh, because with another dream he sees, I, you know, I received, what was it, 10 pounds, and so it was hardly made a dent in the debt uh, that he was carrying. And so he he embraces sort of the life of a holy fool, uh, a blockhead, 
is as it's described here. And so to diminish the the view that the others in the monastery would have him even further, that leads them, as we hear, to lay upon him the greater work or the lowly work of the monastery, the humbling work. And it's embracing this for 13 years, which is sort of like, that's jarring in and of itself, that it, this life is embraced for 13 years without complaint uh, to bear the fruit that it would eventually bear in his life. And he's willing to do it without grumbling and to do it freely, voluntarily. And uh, so it's, again, a very powerful image for us, uh, both in terms of what it is that we would be seeking in and through spiritual direction, and even with confession, how we can confess, how we look at the weight and the burden of our own sin, the mourning that we have over it, the compunction that we have over it, and the disciplines that we are willing to embrace in order to free ourselves from the grip of, of the passions that might have such a hold on us that could take 13 years or 20 years, or who is the, the one who was trying to crawl into the pool of uh, Beseda was, I think he was there for like 38 years or something like that, 34 years, that it could take us that long uh, to overcome the grip of something, but a willingness to take whatever path is necessary, I think is what we see coming forward in here, that we have such a love of God and such a desire for virtue and a hatred for sin that we are willing to do whatever is necessary, whatever the cost, at whatever the cost, in order to, uh, to free ourselves from the grip of it, to be obedient to the commands of God, and to be conformed to Christ. And so it's presenting us with uh, an image of the, the path that is set before us, the narrow way, if you will, that Christ speaks of. Uh, that is rocky and difficult, and that few find, and that even after finding it, fewer still choose to walk along that path. And so again, you know, I think so often the fathers become that cipher for us in terms of how we hear and listen to the gospel. They, they present us through these images uh, in their life, uh, an unvarnished view of the gospel that we often become we often domesticate. We often will, will soften in our interpretation of it. I remember the first time I preached on the gospel where uh, Jesus says, unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, children, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And I was on my day off at my sister's house. And she asked, you know, well, why does Christ feel the need to speak with such hyperbole? You know, why does he need to exaggerate in such a way? And uh, it's a, it was an honest question. And uh, I think it's certainly a question that comes up in our minds as well. Uh, but I think what he's showing us that hate is the one road to abiding love. When it comes to hating sin, 
or mourning over one's sin, that our, the depth of our love and the completeness of our love for Christ and for virtue should be matched by our hatred for sin and our, our willingness to do whatever it takes to, to follow the path that Christ calls us to walk. And we often str strive to do, to embrace the gospel with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And uh, the fathers, in reading the fathers, I don't think they give us that luxury. And I think that's why we find it so jarring and why John is willing, I think, to take us out to the edge of things and our, our thinking about it. And here, once again, in, in this story, too, Angela. Um, yes, in reference to going to the edge of things, um, my, my translation does say, therefore I pretended to be a, to be a fool. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm thinking of also St. Philip Neri, who played the fool quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I've got a fairly serious nature, I'm very attracted <laughs> to, <laughs> to playing the fool. And I, I just wonder, is there any... Um, tradition of this holy fool that uh, you, you could refer me to to read up on? Uh, yes, actually, um, among the stories of the Eastern Saints, there are quite a few that are uh, fascinating. I can't, it's like on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember the name of the one that comes to mind. Uh, I just, I just read the book but, Loris which also contained several holy fools. That's right. And uh, so it's more common in the Eastern tradition. And where you find these individuals that, you know, aren't, and even with St. Philip Neri, uh, that it wasn't simply, like, he, it wasn't buffoonery. In fact, Philip, it's interesting, one of Philip's maxims is that we are to avoid buffoonery, where... It is actually where a person takes nothing serious in their life, you know, uh, whereas uh, a holy fool or the kind of joyfulness that you see in Philip or his willingness to make himself the butt of jokes of other people's uh, jokes or their opinion was not taking himself too seriously, understanding the reality about who he was, his own weakness and his poverty and in the holy fools. We see them take this path where they allow themselves to be seen as others as slightly insane or, you know, that they've lost their mind and they're not living in accord with the uh, realities of the world or the dictates of the world. They, you know, set themselves apart in that regard uh, in terms of how they dress, how they act, you know, that they don't conform to those norms. And part of it is to free themselves from the pride that we often cling to in terms of self-esteem and self-identity, uh, you know, that we so work so hard to build self-respect in the eyes of others. This they set aside for the greater freedom. And, you know, I think we see it manifest in a lot of the Western saints too, you know, certainly Francis of Assisi, I mean, was seen as in insane, uh, you know, even uh, we're told in the Gospels that, you know, his family at one point wanted to take him away because they thought he was insane. You know, that 
what what he was claiming and what he was doing was so contrary to you know, everybody's image of God, but also of what sane behavior would be like. And so there are certain individuals, and obviously not everyone. Yes, Basil of Moscow, right? The way the Pilgrim, St. Francis of Assisi, Andrew, the, the charcoal burner, Benedict Labre, right? So you have all these characters who uh, manifest this kind of holy full image, uh, often, I think, to awaken those around them too, to the vanity of the things of the world. And, you know, Philip Neri is a good model in that regard too, because in Rome, you know, uh, among the clergy as well as among those in the court, you know, there was this, uh, you know, how one dressed or how one was, you know, uh, perceived was, was valued. And so Philip would often make his men like carry a dog uh, through the streets, or poor old Baronius, uh, you know, he'd make him go to the, like, the wine shop and ask for, like, uh, a pint of wine in a big container, and then walk through the streets of Rome to be jeered at by all, all the crowds, and uh, to free them, you know, not to torture them, but to free them from what was very dangerous at Rome in Rome at that point, which was to, to seek honors. And part of Philip Neri's role was that his men were not allowed to take ecclesiastical dignities. So not to become a monsignor, not to become a bishop, nothing like that. And uh, because he knew, knew the dangers of it. And so, you know, whether it's John, you know, pushing us to the very edge here, or the holy fools that you mentioned, or this individual who becomes a blockhead, uh, that uh, it leads him to let go of any need for the respect of others. But I, I think it also then becomes this model to those ar around them and uh, about the, the vanity vanities of the things of this world, how quickly they pass, and how meaningless the, the things that we cling to and often fight for, you know, to be respected by, by others, to be treated in a certain way. And so this uh, Antiochus, you know, decides he's going to jump in with both feet, you know, that he's already, he knows the debt of his sin, the weight of it, the burden of it. And he's already seen the fruit of what it is to live in a form and to be treated in a foreign monastery and to be treated as a foreigner. And so he goes all the way with it in the similar way that Francis goes all the way with poverty, you know, the material poverty that, uh, that brings an unexpected freedom and sweetness to him. And for Antiochus, it was this sense of being freed from the burden of the, the passion, the sin that weighed upon him as like a debt that could never be paid off. And for Francis, there was a kind of joy in the poverty itself that he suddenly found himself free to love God and to love others uh, in, a, in a way that he had never 
been able to before, you know, mm -hmm. that there was no need to hold back or protect himself, to maintain the defenses and the boundaries that we often put up to protect us. And we do that on an unconscious level all the time. We like when boundaries are clear. This is why people build fences around their, their yard and things like that. We, we want to have that sense of security. And we build all kinds of defenses around ourselves and even our demeanor. And you know the, the way that we hold ourselves in, in public uh, is often done in such ways to protect ourselves. If you've ever been in Rome, I think somebody mentioned this in the group once before, you know, Roman women are tough because often the guys on the buses have this reputation of, excuse me for saying it, of being like not very respectful of, you know, groping and things like that. And the Italian women... They, they, if they look at you, it's like they're, they're, they could, their eyes would pierce through, through, through you. They're tough as nails because I think they have, have to be uh, in order to guard themselves from this kind of, of behavior. And, uh, but we do this, I think, in general, in our day-to-day -day life. You know, if somebody insults us in the smallest way, we can be bent out of shape. You know, our nose is out of joint for days on end. And in our group here at the rectory on, on Saturday, we were talking about how our imagination can take over and we can have this inner dialogue going on with ourselves about what we would say to another person and how we would put them in, a, in their place. You know, how our mind is taken over by our passions, our anger, and then imagination jumps in. And then we find ourselves lost in this conversation with ourselves or with the evil one, perhaps. But it's all, you know, we're thinking about how we could protect ourselves or how we could put others in their place. And to, to, to love is to be vulnerable. And you look at Francis, he's incredibly vulnerable. Those who love like him are often experience the abuse of the world. And even within his own order before he died, things shifted and, you know, the people became very critical of him and this ra radical form of obedience that he embraced. There was kind of hardship there uh, that he experienced, you know, even within and perhaps most within his own community. And, uh, and so here in these writings, too, we're sh being shown something more than just obedience, but the vulnerability of love, and in particular of divine love, that is shown to us as being cruciform, you know, that stretches itself out fully in this vulnerable position, arms wide open. You know, it's a powerful image you know, of vulnerability, but also of embrace. So that was a lot. I don't know if I stayed online with your, your thought or not, but. That was great. Thank you. And I wrote down all the suggestions. Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay.
All right, so we're on paragraph 112 on page 94. Let us hear what a gift of discernment this holy man obtained by his utter obedience. When he was residing in the monastery of St. Sabas, three young monks came to him wanting to become his disciples. He gladly received them and at once gave them kindly hospitality, wanting to refresh them after the labor of their journey. When three days had passed, the elder said to them, by nature, brothers, I am prone to fornication, and I cannot accept any of you. But they were not scandalized, for they knew the good work of the elder. Yet however much they asked him, they were quite unable to persuade him. Then they threw themselves at his feet and implored him at least to give them a rule, how they were, how, how and where they ought to live. So he yielded to their entreaties, and knowing that they would receive it with humility and obedience, the elder said to one, the Lord wants you, child, to live in a place of solitude and subjection to a father. And to the second, he said, go and sell your will and give it to God and take up your cross and persevere in a community and monastery of brethren, and you will certainly have treasure in heaven. Then to the third, he said, take in with your very breath the word of him who said, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Go, and if possible, choose for your trainer in the Lord, the most strict and exacting person, and with daily perseverance drink abuse and scorn as milk and honey. Then the brother said to the great John, But father, what if the trainer lives a lax life? The elder replied, Even if you see him committing fornication, do not leave him, but say to yourself, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then you will see all pride vanish from you and lust wither. So interesting. You know, he embraces this humility before them and refuses to take them on as his own disciples and humbles himself before them. You know, whether this was true or not, you know, that he was vulnerable to fornication or thoughts of fornication. Uh, but when he sees their zeal for the life of holiness, he then is willing to give them a role. And this is where we see the, the, the depth of his holiness. It's in his discernment. And this really shows us that he was pure of heart, not what he describes himself as that he has this capacity to see what is going to be most fruitful for each of the three men. So he doesn't give them a blanket role for all three of them, but he individualizes it for them in terms of their particular need, uh, where they should go, the kind of monastery they should join, uh, the elder that they should have, one that is strict, and even what to do in the face of the laxity of the one who, ones who might be responsible for them, to use that as an opportunity for to foster the same kind of humility that they see in him. You know, to basically ask oneself, uh, or to say to oneself, there but the grace of God go I, when they see the laxity of their elder. So they humbly acknowledge that they are capable of the same thing, if not worse, if left to themselves and outside of the grace 
of God. So they're really, you know, again, they're really compelling stories and they push us to think uh, uh, in the sense that, you know, why would he do this? You know, why, why would he refuse to take them on as disciples? And part of that might, again, be his discernment and understanding that it would not be good for them or not be good for himself to take this role of responsibility over these three men. Maybe it would lead him into pride, or maybe he is not what they each needed. Uh, but uh, it also shows us how individual the discernment of the need of uh, certain monks or or what or be lay men and lay women need that there isn't this kind of blanket rule that fits everyone or that everyone would be treated the same that each human person is a mystery and you can't even though there are distinct truths about the spiritual life patterns about human behavior and there are are these stages of the spiritual life that we see consistently in the great spiritual writers and that have been identified the purgative stage the illuminative unitive we see this both in the east and west but what we see i think in the great spiritual writers and teachers in both east and west is this unwillingness uh to look past the individual and their particular needs temperaments and what they struggle with and uh we've talked about this in the past that sometimes this is lacking in our day that uh, on one hand individuals are not tested strictly enough whether they're pursuing the priesthood or religious life and on the other hand there are often uh, certain categories that they have to fall into in order to get into religious life and i think i mentioned to you that how many comments I got on, I don't know if it was from the Ever, it was from the Evergatinos, where it says, do not disrespect the elderly monk. And I had all these people come out of the woodwork saying, thank you for posting this, because I was told that I could not enter or be, become a monk or enter the religious life because I was too old. That most, as you know, most religious communities have this cutoff age of around 40. And uh but then you cut out a whole group of people that might be called by God to walk a certain path in their life. that have gone through all different kinds of experiences, been humbled by life and the where the monastic life might be perfect for them, might be redeeming, might be purifying for them or healing. And, uh, and so I love stories like the one that we just read the where there is this level of discernment that isn't simply looking for somebody to enter into these neat categories and often when communities grow really quickly there's a, a danger of that happening you know they all have to be young you know they all have to be college educated they all have to have a certain personality you know, that's going to make, make them fit in easily with everybody in the community. Well, you know, 
it, what, what fruit is that really going to be bear? You know, and is one really listening to God and discerning where the spirit is guiding a particular person? In the West, we often uh, value things by what worldly success or fruit it bears. Numbers. You know, it's been interesting over the years. I w worked in campus ministry for a lot of years, and often a question that would come from various bishops or various, you know, people, you know, how many students came or how many, you know, students do you have coming? You know, say Pitt is 30,000 students, and a good 30% or maybe more of those are Catholic in one form or another. And so you would expect out of 30,000, quite a few students. And so there can be this expectation that, you know, you should have big numbers. And big numbers doesn't necessarily mean that the ministry is bearing fruit. You could simply be offering food at every group, and that would attract a certain number of, of students. But is it something that's truly formative and that's going to carry them beyond the campus years? Campus ministry is not meant to be entertaining, you know, and sometimes it can fall into that. There has to be something formative that enlivens this love for Christ and love for virtue. And, you know, certainly I think when we read the fathers, it's sobering, you know, because it's so unvarnished. It's saying this life, you know, you were created for God and you're only going to find rest and peace in him. And the only thing that matters is love and giving yourself in love and the virtues. And if we are pursuing something else outside of God or that does not begin and end with him, then it's all vain. It all disappears into dust. And so, you know, these readings wake us up. So even living in the world, you know, and getting married, for example, and having a family, you know, this still has to begin and end with God. The giving of oneself to one's spouse, the, the rearing of one's children, all has to be seen in and through this lens of the pursuit of holiness and the ones that are entrusted to you and to your care and your formation. You know, children don't need to have this opportunity, every opportunity in the world to play every sport and to be in ballet and, you know, to have all these, you know, to go to the best universities, you know, they're to be formed into being whole, holy human beings, you know, who have the capacity to love and give themselves and love. And, you know, what are all those things going to mean when their life comes to its close? Okay, I'm obviously not making this any lighter. Anybody have any comments here? Uh, Anthony writes, religious communities don't need to be formally approved. People can just have their own informal community. No. Yes. 
you know, I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about can the more recent canon law from 1983 brought back in the eremitical life, so allowing for one to become a diocesan hermit, you know, under the bishop. So trying to bring back uh, this way of life that sort of had disappeared from the West. And, uh, but a person does not have to become a diocesan hermit to live the life of a hermit. You know, a life that is really focused upon the, uh, on prayer and the ascetical life, that one could do that in the world and set up a role for oneself and have a spiritual director and do that without it becoming formally acknowledged, say, under, under the bishop. And I think the problem is, is that we have compartmentalized so many things. You know, religious and priests and lay people or those who live in the world as if there are two different kinds of life or holiness that we are called to. And in reality, you know, by virtue of our baptism, we're all called to that perfection in Christ by the grace that we've been given. And one of the things that the Second Vatican Council did emphasize was this universal call to holiness. And, uh, and that's one of the greatest reasons for all of us reading these works. You know, these are treasures that have been buried, you know, either because of lack of translation or because of fear of taking them up or laziness, you know, uh, an unwillingness to enter into the fullness of the, of the tradition and do the work that is needed there. Any other thoughts? All right. Paragraph 113. Let all of us who wish to fear the Lord struggle with our whole might, so that in the school of virtue, we do not acquire for ourselves malice and vice, cunning and craftiness, curiosity and anger. For it does happen, and no wonder. As long as a man is a private individual or a seaman or a tiller of the soil, the king's enemies do not war so much against him. But when they see him taking the king's colors and the shield and the dagger and the sword and the bow and clad in soldier's garb, then they gnash at him with their teeth and do all in their power to destroy him. And so let us not slumber. So. You know, this is really uh, a powerful, you know, especially for John's readers, saying that one can enter into the religious life and what one can learn uh, in that life is how to be cunning and crafty. One can, can become even skilled in malice and vice. Uh, because you learn the language of the spiritual life on a certain level, and you live in the midst of a community. But if you're not pursuing the Lord with all of your might, if you're not engaging in the spiritual warfare, that there's a danger there of you becoming more skilled in, in malice and vice uh, by being in this life, but not really embracing it not embracing it fully. 
And so if you enter into the monastic life, he's saying to them, but you do not take hold of the responsibility, but also the grace that is offered through it, that what you will experience is greater corruption. And so don't slumber. And I think the same is true in the other, other paths within this world. You know, those who get married, but don't see the dignity and the identity of that life. And the, the grace that comes in and through the commitment to the other and the need for holiness and humility and self-sacrificing love uh, can enter into that and have it become something that's uh, very ugly or destructive on so many, many levels that does not produce the, the fruit of holiness for oneself, one's spouse, or for one's children. And, uh, and so the same call goes out, you know, don't slumber, because if you enter into this holding on to self-will, then it's, it's only going to destroy the very thing that initially attracted, attracted you. And the way that you know that you've entered into it and that you are warring is that if you start to be warred against, and this is where we left off last time, that when the enemy begins to attack us fiercely, whenever we take up prayer or seek to foster these virtues, we're going to be attacked because then it shows that whose colors we are wearing, that we've put on you know, the, the our kings, we've closed our, ourselves with the garb of our king and have taken up wep the weapons that he's given us. Humility, love, self-sacrifice. And when the enemy sees us doing that is when we, we become a threat. And so if we're living sort of this life of comfort and, you know, or, or coasting, you know, we, we open ourselves, you know, to, uh, you know, great spiritual danger. There is no static, and I've said this many times before, no static position in the spiritual life. You know, we're going to be drawn along in the current, either of the grace of God, or we're going to be drawn along by another spirit to become something that is not holy. There's a couple of comments here. Ambrose Little, there are benefits of being in a recognized authorized community, though. Of course, you know, I think over the course of time, the church regularizes communities and makes them create a kind of role uh, out of its store of wisdom, of what it's learned over the course of centuries in terms of what allows communities to persevere and bear fruit and truly be formative. And, uh, and so there are benefits like the Benedictine life has this very long tradition, a, a specific role. Uh, the people aren't reinventing the wheel, but they're, they're immersing themselves in a tradition that has been tested over the course of time and, and perfected. So point well taken. And Johnny Ross writes, we must embrace the scars of this battle. The obstacle is the way. That's right. You know, that uh, we aren't going to get out of this life 
without scars. And I think just day-to-day -day living shows us that, but certainly living the spiritual life and engaging in spiritual battle, we are going to know the, the wounds of that. And uh, I always love this, you know, what, uh, uh, and I've mentioned before what a bishop said to his priest about, you know, don't be so worried about becoming burned out that you never catch flame, that you, you know, that you become so focused upon your personal health and rest that you begin to protect yourself from being overextended, that you never develop this zeal for the Lord or zeal for others. And because the more that you offer yourself and pour yourself out, the, the more that God bestows in abundance upon you, his grace, in order to be able to give yourself even more fully. You know, when you empty yourself out, he fills you with even grace and greater abundance. And so when we are afraid of getting burned out, you know, it's often uh, an excuse for, for laziness or negligence in terms of our du duties. Those who give themselves joyfully and freely without grumbling find themselves to be lifted up by it as exhausted as they might be. Internally, they begin to experience something of the joy of the kingdom. It's when we begin to live this insular life, when we're turned in on ourselves, hyper-aware, hypochondriac. You know, the first moment we get a little bit of a sore throat, we shut down for the day. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting sick. I gotta, you know, you know, cancel everything that I'm doing. Uh, whereas, you know, those who are fully immersed in the life of prayer, you know, they, they experience all the same things that everybody else does, fatigue, you know, sickness, but they never lose that joy uh, of Christ or the joy of the kingdom. They're able to make their way through those things and see God acting even in and through them, even in through the times that we experience sickness or weakness. Ambrose, did you have another comment? Yeah, I just wanted to build on what you're saying because there's the practical part of it but there's also the spiritual so like for the dominicans for instance there's been a lot of spiritual benefits bestowed you know upon the order and the members of the order as an example and then also the uh i think there's the act of it's kind of an, an extension of the act of obedience and humility of submitting yourself to the authority of the bishop or the or your order or whatever it is you know that you're not just going it on your own and figuring it out, you know, because you can do better or something. I don't know, but like, you know, there's that aspect too. Right. Yeah. The, it's the most beautiful thing. I think is when the obedience is interiorized and, you know, maybe the most concrete example is that of, you know, the obedience to loving others. And I, I see it in families and in like parents, because you have to respond to your children and their needs, regardless of how you feel or you're sick. And if your kids are sick, you're taking care of them while you're sick and you're making meals for them while you're sick. And you're, you're responding there out of the ob obedience of love. You know, you're, you're, you're hearing what God is telling you in, in the sense of the call to serve and give yourself uh, even when you, you don't have it, or feel that you have it within your, yourself to, to do so. 
And, you know, often this is hidden from the world, but it's not hidden from the eyes of God. And, uh, and often those things that are most hidden like this bear the greatest fruit in people's lives to the simple things. It's not often in the grand things that we do. It's in our attentiveness to others, tenderness towards others, responsiveness to their need in that moment. You know, not all the things that we check off on our to-do list, but rather in the people that we engage throughout the day and how, how we engage them. That's, those are the th things in the eyes of God that are, are most fruitful. So a lot to contemplate. And uh, I, I sort of thought we would get through obedience tonight, but again, I'm, I'm wrong. Uh, but we, I'm happy with what we got through. Uh, but again, you know, don't be worried. If there are things that are unsettling here, that's okay. And I'd say good. If there are things that you don't see unsettling here, I think there's something wrong with you <laughs> because uh, it really does push us. And, uh, and so again, don't be hesitant to bring up comments, questions, or concerns. Yeah. It always bears fruit to talk through them. So why don't we stop there? We're past 8.30 and we'll pick up next week. All right. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you.